we have a guest, everybody, today. That's the exciting news. And it's a great guest. I'm so excited. I mean, third time's the charm. I mean, third time's. And no technical difficulties this time. And no COVID infection <laughs> either, Look at us. I hope. <laughs> I mean, third time's the charm in a lot of ways. It's great. Yes. And why don't you introduce yourself? And wait, why don't we introduce ourselves? I guess. Welcome, everyone, to Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And our guest today... C. Travis Rice, otherwise known as the artist formerly known as Christopher Rice, which is a lie. I'm still Christopher Rice in my part-time gig. Your part-time gig? It's, yeah, it seems like us. a pretty full-time gig, Christopher Rice. <laughs> it's pretty. I'm a split personality is what I'm saying. Yes, as C. Travis Rice, I write sexy, emotional uh, queer romance, mostly with men. I think all with men for the C. Travis Rice brand. And then Christopher Rice, you don't really know what you're going to get. It's just <laughs> usually very scary. And C. Travis Rice is not scary. It's sexy. That's so fun to me because it seems like those two things would not go together. Would not, you wouldn't be able to sort of do both, but you absolutely do. And I wonder if you could talk a little, like, how did that happen? Have you, because you're also, I mean, not to out you to everybody, but you're also an incredibly big romance reader. I am. You and I met because we became Instagram buddies and like we've been talking about romance novels. I will like wake up in the middle of the night and be like, Sarah, I need a small town romance that references the Columbia River Valley in chapter three, but not chapter four. And it needs to be male, male and from 1996. And she's like, on it. I'm going to my Facebook page. I'm on it. I mean, I feel like that's the best thing about romance readers for sure. But then, of course, when you have the thing you really are dying to find. You have to write it if you're a writer sometimes. I think that's what some of us worst. go through. Yeah. yeah it's terrible for both of you. It really is. My sincerest job. apologies. <laughs> it's just terrible being able to create your own space mentally that you can escape into when things are rough and difficult in your everyday life. Yeah. No, I... um. <laughs> I I sort of like, I came in, I don't want to call it the side door of romance land, but I was swept in initially on the erotic romance, uh, I call it the Fifty Shades Gold Rush, where a lot of writers <laughs> like me thought, I'm going to write my Fifty Shades of Grey, and we did, and people were like, huh. <laughs> but it was... An exciting time where like digital was taking over and everybody yes. thought digital was going to take over and it was becoming a part of it. And as a result of that, all of these small presses were taking queer mo- romance out of just internet forms and the world of slash and fanfic and making a sort of new platform for it. So I was very much like riveted by this process. And I eventually reached a place where I had had a stressful year. I went home for the holidays and I just needed a total comfort read and I fell head over heels into the holding the dream trilogy by Nora Roberts. And I said, I want to write a queer male version of this. And I, and so I had to, I was under contract for a book that was a dark thriller as the pandemic descended. And I had to write that in the morning. And then my reward in the afternoon was that I got to write Sapphire Cove, the first Sapphire Cove book, which I had no plans for what I was going to do with it. It was just totally my thing. It was this beachy resort in Orange County, these two gorgeous guys that I was in love with, and I loved their dynamic. And it was sort of grumpy sunshine, but not really. And I just, um, I wrote like six drafts of it over the course of the pandemic. I had different friends beta read it and 
it completely changed from draft one to draft two. It had like no conflict <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> it was just like, and I think a lot of writers, sometimes with projects that are very special to us, we have to do that. We have to take all of the stakes out of it or we'll never start the journey. Mm-hmm. You know? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, that makes sense. I mean, but what's interesting is that knowing that you have this sort of other life as Christopher Rice, it the C. Travis Rice books... Uh, the the Sapphire Cove series, it has such a sort of strong plotting. There's, there's, which is a real thing that doesn't happen all the time in romance because it doesn't have to. I mean, like romance is really the genre of like vibes and character, but so, so, but your, your skill in plotting, which is so integral to your other books is really on show here, which is great. Thank you. I'm always worried it's too much, right? I always have that sort of outsider imposter syndrome. Like this is the stakes are too high in this. I, I'm always worried about coming up with a plot that's too far afield of the relationship, which I do think is kind of a romance no-no. Like you don't want yeah. to distract from the development of these two or three, which I've uh, sure, whatever done previously. Yeah, whatever the dynamic is, you don't want to distract. You don't want to build a conflict that's so external to those characters that it feels like you're either reading something else or you're reading a thriller that train wrecked into a romance right, and left right. all this debris all over the tracks. But I I really struggled with having a dark moment. I really mm. did. I struggled. And I gave it, I gave the book out again and again. I gave it to Joel Shalvas, I gave it to J.R. Ward, and they both had different ways of saying your book has no dark moment. And that's sort of a problem because it was like, they had some words in a hallway and then it was back to the love. Well, you also gave it to two people who like really love a dark moment. Oh, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like you gave it to someone like soft and gentle. (laughs) Totally. And I just, but I think, you know, those sorts of moments make you fall in love with the relationship more, right? It's Mm -hmm. like you, you, and, and, Every sort of like, I know out here in LA, every popular kind of screenwriting coach always talks about the moment where you deal with death in some way in your story, even if nobody's dying, literally. And the dark moment is about that. Like, this is not guaranteed. These these people have to work for this. So, right. So, That's it only what took I me always a whole say. Year. We love it. We're big fans of the dark moment. And I think there's sort of a movement in romance. And I think it makes a lot of sense. I think people are. You know, the pandemic is hard. Living right now is stressful and scary. The future is uncertain. And so a lot of people are like, I cannot even take the the, the anxiety of the low moment in a romance novel when I know it's going to work out. But I always feel the same way because I feel like to me it's that moment where this is when I know that the characters have really committed. Mm-hmm, where right. they've said working through this together is worth it. And it's just a, a signal that they will continue to make that choice in the future. And that is the real HEA to me, right? Now right. that it's like perfect sunshine, rainbows, sapphire coves, although that is also nice, but it, that it's, we have decided that when the going gets rough, we're going to give it a shot and try and work it out together. And that's why yeah. I think it's important. I know people don't like it. I personally love it. And often when I'm rereading my favorite books, I like I start there. I'm like, let me pick up where these two are the most tortured suffer. But here's the thing. You didn't seem to have this problem in Sapphire Spring because you delivered us (laughs) a very intense relationship from the jump in Sapphire Spring. So talk a little bit about this book, uh, which is number two. 
Yes. And I feel like I worked up my confidence because having been able to bring them back from the brink in Sapphire uh, Sunset, two different heroes, of course, but being able to do that, I was like, okay, now I can really put the pedal to the metal. Because yeah. Now he's driving a Lamborghini. It's yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I always was thinking, it's like, we were talking about this episode. We got, we were all communicating about this and it was like, Sapphire Spring is really a bully romance. Maybe we can talk about bully, all this sort of stuff. And I was like, I don't really read a lot of this subgenre. Like no, I, me neither. And I think part of why I wanted to do this is because my own sense of like, it's really hard to do this one right. Because just to give you the thumbnail, uh, Nasser, who is the friend of, of the hero in the first book or one of them, this is his story. And he is reunited with his still obnoxiously gorgeous former jock high school bully, right? And um, this is a very like elemental queer man's porn fantasy, right? <laughs> But that's not enough to spin a, a whole novel out of. It's like, you have to go deeper. It's like, I'm reunited with him. Oh, he says, basically, by the way, I treated you badly because I was really, you know, into you and hot. And the porn fantasy would then... Listen, it's... I'm going to interrupt yes. you because... Wait, you're interrupting right the porn fantasy. I mean, we're going <laughs> to... I'm going to put a pit... We're, I'll remember where we were, Jen. Okay. So, right now, Ernie, my friend, is like, wait, you interrupted the porn sorry, fantasy. Sorry, Ernie. Okay. Just hang on we'll a second. To you're going to approve of it. Because what he's skipping is that when we first meet the bully, Mason, on yes. page, he's, like, had a, like, he's had a moment with, you know, a, a complete stranger where mm-hmm. he is talking about Nasser. Like, mm-hmm. they haven't seen each other since high school, and he's still obsessed with yes. I mean, like, long-term, many years go by, and this man is, like, Basically having fever dreams about <laughs> Nasser continually. He is talking A in plus, his sleep. No notes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. No. <laughs> he, no. He wakes up out of it. And he's also, he's dealing with some substance abuse issues, right? This is someone who has not accepted who he is on any level. He's not come out as bisexual. He's not, you know, and there's a lot going on with him. And I thought, oh God, I really hope people buy into this character because it's like... I, you know, his journey is going to take him on a path of recovery and redemption overall, but I can't remember, and I know it's out there and I know someone will probably correct me on this, but I can't remember reading a romance novel where we follow someone into recovery and we meet them before they get there. You know what I mean? Like they're like, he's coming out of a blackout and it's not, and he's gratefully didn't burn his house down. Meanwhile, he's talking about Nasser in his sleep. Right. And so I love it. And it, yeah, it's and it's like But now go back to the t- porn fantasy, please. <laughs> I was like <laughs> Right. I mean, is it he's talking about this man in his sleep because <laughs> he's because he he would really like to make up for a lot of lost time. Exactly. And then yeah. Oh, wouldn't you know it? They're at a party together at Sapphire Cove because yeah, romance as you all is like the best. to say romance reasons. <laughs> romance reasons. Of course they're at a party slogan. together. Yeah. <laughs> right? And he's like not Nasser is not happy to see him mainly because he still looks so good, mm. um, which is annoying. But like, <laughs> so then it turns into I, I won't spoil all of it, but they end up at Mason's house um, because Makes again sense. romance reasons. And Mason basically wants 
that confession, right? Which I was really into you. And that's why I, I bullied you to be enough. And Nasser's yeah. like, yeah, that's really not enough. Like <laughs> not on, on right. top of that, it makes you a bully and a hypocrite. And so that is what really sets Mason on this, on this arc of I've got to make this right. You know, because I think it's easy to believe if you are an oppressor that you are doing somebody a favor by letting them sleep with you. <laughs> it's really <laughs> twisted. That's, that's porn logic. You know, that's not romance logic. <laughs> oh, wait, that's amazing. That's porn logic. Oh my God. Right? Well, I mean, I, or I think like it, the porn logic of like, if I give this guy like the greatest sex, like we have just a great one night together, like somehow it makes up for it. Right. Right. So I mean right. the, the, the belief that like a, a physical thing can fix a feelings thing. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Now here's my question though. Is that just porn logic or is that the patriarchy, the patriarchy's logic? I think that that they are often one in the same. I was gonna say, <laughs> sure. Why yeah. not both? Sarah was like, <laughs> I think I, I think I, I think I know the answer, right? Yeah. But this yeah, is, this I think is the I think they are that we've been talking about is this kind of question of at what point? So this this episode is about remorse and redemption in romance and or maybe it's not about remorse but it is about redemption in romance and so Mm -hmm. i think that in the case of mason and your book there is of course remorse in here and there is a sense of having to atone right for Mm -hmm. past sins Um, I don't think that always happens in romance, though. And I think there are different rules for different kinds of characters in different subgenres. And I want to kind of dig into that. But what's interesting about your book and this, this is when I think about what I want from a book that's about this, that has this kind of longstanding... Somebody has done someone else ill and it has taken years for them to get to remorse. The question is always like, how much of the act do you put on the page? Like how much of the villainy do you let the reader see? And that's really about reader forgiveness too and how much you're willing to ask of a reader. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think about, thought about that in the crafting of this, because there are some flashbacks, but Yes. You're careful. Well, you know, and I, what, what was Mason's biggest sin in high school? And I think what emerges from that is aside from sort of participating peripherally in the bullying there, it is his belief that he reigned it in among his, he's, there's a group of three of them. They're really the, the primary, they're the, the aggressors. Yeah. And Mason is the lightest of the three and believes that he is containing them and reining it in. And he's going to a lot of half measures to make it worse, uh, less worse than he thinks it could be. And he has to accept that none of those were enough. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as you come to discover one of the bullies is still in his life and that the, the reason Mason has cultivated this side of him that has allowed this bully to, to remain in his sphere is that he's not addressed his own dishonesty about who he is. And then until he goes to the, the source of, of the villainy for him and nips it in the bud and makes different choices, nothing's going to be fixed. So what you get later in the book, which was one of those decisions that it made me feel a little squirrely because it takes him physically away from Nasser, is this idea that he's got to deal with the bullies who are still 
on his side of the field and he's got to get rid of both of them or he's got to contend with them. And there are two, I won't give too much away. And, um, but that act is about making himself worthy of Nasser, you know, being willing to do, there's nothing sexier than someone who's willing to deal with their shit for you because who wants to deal with your shit? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, right? and I think that's one of the things we were talking about a lot is cause I am like on record is really loving groveling. But this to me yeah. is really different because mm-hmm. I think groveling is like when you, it happens in the course of the book, right? Like we see it happening kind of in real time and they have to immediately or pretty quickly fix it. But mm-hmm. redemption is a, like a, that's it's about the term. past. It's long term. Yeah. And I yeah. also, I think the other thing we we were sort of kicking around as an idea was groveling often when they like the fuck up first happens they can't really like see it or admit it, right? Like it's it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I I figured out I've now I see it and I want to be different and be worthy of this person. But redemption, it's like the other person often isn't even really involved. Like at some point, this person with can see for themselves and into themselves, right? Like this is an act, like groveling, I love it, but it's about like sort of. I I want you to forgive me. Redemption often seems like it's more like I want to forgive myself. Yeah. Right? And then by yeah. doing that, obviously, but you know what I mean? Like it's not like it doesn't sound like Nasir makes like a list of things you need to do. <laughs> right? Like Mason has to realize for himself. You know, Nasir, his position is I need to, if I'm going to be with you, I need to believe that you're never going to be that guy who put me in a locker against my will again, you know, and there's a complicated uh, kink driven sexuality to their relationship where he sort of draws out that part of Mason in a circumstance over which he has control and consent that they mutually agree to almost like a role play environment. And it's like, this is where you can do this and in this way and on my terms and nowhere else. Right. And, and that becomes an important part of their relationship. But I think you're right. And I think there's an interesting distinction between um, protagonists who need to um, make a direct amends to a character, usually the love interest and characters who are on a general redemption arc. You know what I mean? Like reformed criminals, you know, people who are out of, out of prison, who, who have done, been there rightfully so because they've done bad things and they're trying to live a new life and they want to have love as part of that life. That's a sort of larger canvas uh, for the whole redemption idea. But it is all about who are you going to be today? You know what I yeah. mean? And you've got to, and every day, every minute of every day, like, you know. And why? Right. There's, it feels like in some of those, you know, we've, we've talked before we've done an episode on morality chain as a concept. And the thing that we've talked about so much is that morality chain is really about like one protagonist pulling the other one into the light. Right. So when you think about, um, I mean, the obvious example is something like Lothair, Cressley Cole's Lothair, right? Where he, the the premise of that book, he really talk about redemption, him requiring redemption. He tortures her. He sends her to prison. Um, he sends his human mate to prison and she's on death row. And then he, and so she's, you know, it's, it's horrible what he does to her. And right. then he has, he shows absolutely no remorse until love is in the balance with her. And then he has, she essentially brings him to light. 
that's not what that's not what's happening in books that really are about redemption because mm-hmm. Lothair wouldn't would it be exactly the same without her if she had if not for his heroine he yeah. would never have changed but like right. is that the case with Mason do you think do you think without Nasser he would still be Mason Mason the bully I think that it, he probably, without Nasser re-entering his life, he wouldn't have gone to the source of his trouble. Mm. So I would say no. Like, he wouldn't have been able to look. I mean, there's even a line in his head where he says he has, in the context of consensual sexual relationships, role-played being a bully before for other partners. But it's nothing like doing it for the guy who essentially he did this to. Yeah. yeah. It makes him really look at himself. Why have you been living? Why have you been living the same way you've been living since high school? Why has yeah. very little about your life changed? It's because you're trying to hold it in stasis because you don't want the shell to crack. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're drinking to keep the shell in place, all that sort of stuff. So I think it's kind of like maybe there would have been another character who had come along and knocked him off his right, perch, right. but I not quite as fast and as as strong. Well, because yeah. it's I mean, the emotional connection to Nasir is what, I mean, but he needs to still, like, fix things for himself, right? Yeah. Like, he's more like a catalyst, whereas in Lothair, it's kind of like, I have to do it for her, right? In some ways, yeah. it feels different. Mm-hmm. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by MJoy. MJoy is a sexual well-being audio app that gives you access to a huge library of audio guides, well-being tutorials, and erotic stories. You can download MJoy to learn how to climax consistently, how to accept your body, and how to improve your relationships. All of MJoy's content is scientifically backed by a team of sexual health experts, and they release new batches of audio erotica and content every single week. You can find MJoy on the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store, and special for Faded Mates listeners, listeners can get a free 14-day trial to MJoy with the link letsmjoy.com slash mates. As always, you can find that link and all other links to sponsors in show notes. But this one is MJoy, E for erotic, M for mmm, and joy. Aren't you curious what MJoy has in store for you, Jen? I mean, look, we love romance. We're ready to take it to the next level with MJoy. One thing to remember, everyone, is you can't enter codes into the app. So in order to enjoy the free 14-day trial, make sure you either click on the links in show notes or just enter in that full address into your browser bar to find it. So it's MJoy, but we think you will enjoy it. And make sure that you check it out. So thank you to MJoy for sponsoring this week's episode. Sarah, I feel like it's, I mean, I'm sure we want to hear about, to me, like Day of the Duchess, right? So you wrote a character who really needed to redeem himself, right? I mean, you are not unfamiliar with like kind of this arc. So I'd like to also hear from from both of you about this. I'm really interested in the the spectrum of ills. That, like the mm. spectrum of crime that can be committed <laughs> that requires right. redemption, right? Like there's, you know, high school bullying. There's sending your fated mate to death row to just like sit on ice on death row for a while. Um, in Day of the Duchess, you know, Mal has a, Mal cheats and then like basically like pushes 
Yeah, um, are away. Serafina away for years, and she, like, pieces out and takes off. Um, and then, but it's funny because I feel like the book that I wrote that's the most redemption book is Daring and the Duke, where he has committed crime on page against her and her, her you know, brothers, her sort of siblings, for two books. And then, mm-hmm. but he turns up at the beginning of Daring and the Duke ready to suffer for her. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an entire, I think both Daring and, both Day of the Duchess and Daring and the Duke are like whole books about how uh, one protagonist has to, I mean, in my case, suffer, right? Like that's what I want from <laughs> right. men in in MF, right? Like I want yeah. patriarchy yeah. to suffer. Right. Um and so that's what those two books are about. But, like, they're difficult to write because yes. you have to balance, you know, are they, have they done, t- have they done enough? Yeah. Have they done enough to be forgiven? But, like, yeah. if they do too much that's bad, will readers forgive them? And I, I think mean, this that in is, both of those cases, though both right? of those books, there are, there are readers of both of those books who will never forgive those heroes for what they've done. You know, we've talked Absolutely, before about right. cheating being yeah. a third rail right. in romance oh, for a lot yeah. of people. Right. And then, of course, uh, what's his name? Ewan. <laughs> what's his name? The hero of Daring and the Duke. I mean, he's a murderer. He's killed people um, because of her. I mean, for her, you know, right. essentially because he was obsessed with her. So I think, you know, but then I think there's this whole other world of romance, the sort of dark romance world, where those right. characters, those protagonists, never atone. They mm-hmm. just right. fall in love, which is fascinating. Yes. And I think that's why no one would classify your book as a dark romance, right? Like, he's a bully, but this is not a bully romance. Right. And it's weird because the term bully romance almost implies that bullies are sexy, right? Whereas like what's happening here is that Mason as an immature high schooler picks up, is immediately attracted to this guy, but also picks up on Nasser's repression of his own desire. And his the only way Mason can react to it is with this sexualized nickname, Prancer, which is what they call him because of the way he walks. Mm-hmm. So it's all this like two people who can't meet where they are in that period of their lives. And this toxic contorted yeah. um, relationship develops. It needs to be healed. So it's all that sort of stuff. But I think you're right. Like what Sarah's talking about is when you get into straight up crime, yeah, like you always, I don't know. And this is like, I defer to you on this Sarah, because when you're writing historicals, like you're often dealing with laws of the period that are like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, what was the law? You went to jail for what? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> a loaf of bread. Yeah, right. Newgate, you're done. Yeah. You get a whole musical, though. So <laughs> it's a whole franchise. Yeah. But so that, I think, you know, plays into it. But like, you're dealing with Mason's a very privileged guy in addition yeah. to that. So it's mm-hmm. hard. It's hard to believe that. That that his his crimes, quote unquote, if you will, in high school were generated by anything other than his own uh, self repression, if that's yeah. the word you want to use, right? Internalized homophobia, yeah. right? I, or biphobia, right? Yeah. And I do think 
I think that's fascinating. You know, the the immediate thought that I have whenever whenever somebody talks about a bully in romance, not bully romance, but a character who is a bully, right? I immediately think about Charlotte Stein's Never Sweeter. Which, have you ever read this? No. It's I'm wow. writing this down. I mean, Charlotte it is. Stein. It's Charlotte a- Stein, we've talked about her before on the pod. In fact, I think this, I think we, the last time we talked about this book, we talked about it in the first interstitial ever in season one. This book is like, I think of as being a, like, it's one of those books people were like, you should read Never Sweet. And I was like, I can't do it. I can't read about this. He, bull- he, he, it's similar to the setup. He bullies her. He and with her a friends. Couple other kids. He and his, he friends, and his friends. Right. Drive he kind her of off the road and she Ugh. like, yeah. Falls down a cliff and breaks her leg. And that's oh, the beginning of the Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. And, and so then it's a couple years later, and he, and they're in college, and he essentially has found her, and she is, like, terrified the first time she sees him. Like, literally almost, like, has a panic. Well, she it has, has a, a panic traumatic attack. response. Right. Right? And then we understand over time that he just is full of regret and remorse. Right. And I think the thing, and I, you know, I would like to like preface this by saying like, this is a book that worked for me, but I think a lot of these books, there are going to be things that just will not work for people. Right. Cause the thing about redemption, I really believe as a reader is, um, you, every reader really is bringing their own baggage to the table. And so the things that I might find forgivable or, like, I can deal with this are going to be different than someone else. And so when we talk about any book where, like, someone has really fucked up enough to be in the redemption category, it's really interesting to see, like, what what works for people. But he spends the entire book convincing her that he is truly sorry and that he wants nothing more than her forgiveness. But also, a lot of the... Now, this part's really interesting, because a lot of the ways that they targeted her was about her being fat, right? Mm-hmm. And I... It's funny, because I I don't really talk necessarily too much about, like, things I tell students in my classroom, but I there's an observation I make to kids, or I try to at least during the year at some point. And I was like, you know, this is a very... This is a huge generalization, okay? I, like, preface that. But I was like, if you want, in middle school, right, because I teach middle school, if you want to make a girl feel bad, you make fun of how she looks or you tell her she's fat. Middle school boys, I was like, they don't do that. That's not how you, you, for middle school boys, you call each other gay, mm-hmm. right? That is, that is how you, you essentially are saying you're not manly enough, Right. And yes. I, and I to make the point, I even say to kids, I was like, girls don't say to each other, like, you're a lesbian. Like the kids laugh, like they see that that is not harmful, right? The same way. So I think another part of Never Sweeter is he is really also like, I need to make her understand that I think she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right. That like mm-hmm. that was the harm that was also done, was not just that we've teased her, but that like we really like kneecapped her in terms of her ability to even feel good about herself in the world. And that he sees as being kind of like the greatest crime, similar to what you're talking about with like calling him Prancer, right? Like right. That's because that's where you're really like hitting somebody where it hurts. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, it's always when it comes to how readers respond to these sorts of stories, it's about if, do you carry an experience of being bullied? And if you do, how did you perceive it or how did you interpret it either then or now? And I think what Nasser eventually says to Mason is this was sexual harassment. 
what you did to me. You were harassing me about my sexual identity before I was ready to deal with it. The school looked the other way. But if this had been articulated in explicit sexual terms to a woman by a boy and a teacher had witnessed it, the reaction might have been far more swift than you calling me gay. And everyone was just, you know, man up and deal with it, which is the response that I often got when I was, I was never subjected to anything on the physical level of what Nasser experiences in high school, but emotionally and psychologically, I was constantly yeah. cough and slurs under the breath. Why did you turn your assignment in on paper that was bright red? It was a weird choice of paper for that assignment, <laughs> but it was what was available. Anyway, <laughs> beer boss, and it wasn't right. perfumes, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like, it is a form of, I know more about you than you do, or you have a secret yeah. and you are hiding it. It's, it's just as pernicious and, and toxic and destructive as going after a, a woman about yeah. her weight mm-hmm. you know, or parents in any way. And I think it's that sense of attacking young people, attacking other young people for what they perceive to be a form of sexual inadequacy. Mm-hmm. What they have defined it as such. And I can totally understand why nobody wants to read a romance novel about it. No, but what? I think what's fascinating you know? is that I don't I don't think that's true at all. I think we all sort of are drawn because if you think about there's a whole you know over the course of the however many seasons we've been doing this we've we've really come to this place where we think about all of romance in Venn diagrams, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, bully romance or romance featuring bullies is like it seems like it's a small a small circle, but it is overlapping with a lot of these he stood me up at prom in high school. Right. There's yeah. this high, I mean, we all know it, right? We know it because we lived it. We know it because many of us are parents and see it in our own children in high school. And like, it's just constantly repeated. You can't stop this cycle of high school being yeah. a looming, that whole yeah. period of our lives just looms enormous. And mm-hmm. all the things that people say to us are just internalized deeply. Right. Right. during that entire time. And so, you know, every Jill, Sh- I mean, I think Jill Shalvis does this better than anyone that sort of like, we knew each other in high school and you mm-hmm. broke my heart or like, you know, whatever the thing was. Right. And now you're back and you return to your small town in, right. in shame and you have to figure it out. You know, I think about one of the other books that is on my list is um, Susan Elizabeth Phillips' Ain't She Sweet, um, which is uh, Sugar Beth's story. And Sugar Beth, uh, when she was a teenager, there was a young English teacher at her school, and she was, like, very beloved in the neighborhood. She, you know, she had her, her parents were very powerful. She had a very, like, she was very powerful in, in terms of the hierarchy of high school. And he wouldn't tolerate it. He gave her, you know, he was 22 right out of, of college and he gave her a bad grade on a test and she called him. uh, She told her parents and the rest of the school that he had harassed her, um, falsely Mm. accused him of harassment and he was run out of town. Um, and he Mm -hmm. writes a memoir he writes a novel, it might be a novel or a memoir, but whatever, or a novel based on the whole situation. It becomes a huge, huge thing. It becomes clear that Sugarbeth lied and mm-hmm. she is shunned by her community, but can't go anywhere. Like has no, because she mm. was Queen Bee and never, there was no out path for her because she had never intended, she never expected there to, to need one. And right. so 
And then he comes back to town triumphant. I mean, mm. um, a best-selling author who everybody now respects and, like, realizes that they have mistreated. And she has to atone for what she's done. And mm. there is... And it's the only time, it is the only romance that I can think of where the heroine committed a really unforgivable, like, or, mm-hmm. or not unforgivable, right? Because they end right. up together and it, it's fine. But a, a really damaging crime. Right. And ha- Susan makes her suffer on page. Mm-hmm. And then you as a reader feel like, oh my gosh, like, yeah. I feel every... Emotion yeah. in that book. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because I think it is very unusual to find a romance where it's the woman who really does wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's just because I, like, you know, many women are writing and they just don't want to, like, see women suffer that way or, like, right? Like, maybe, you know, they're already, like, women suffer so much. I mean, I don't, I mean, it's, it's, like, a really fascinating, like, sort of thing to me. There's one book I can think of, um, it's called the, I don't even really want to say too much about it. It's called The Vixen and the Vet, like, not a veterinarian, a veteran. (laughs) A war vet, right. A war vet. And, um, she, it's by Katie Regnery, I think is her name, and she is a, um, like, a reporter, and and she isn't really honest, I think, that she is maybe planning to write, like, kind of his story, and he finds out at the end, but it's more like a groveling than it is redemption, right, because she is, like, really the whole time, like, oh, should I tell him, what should I do, but, like, he, she really suffers at the end, and it was hard for me to read. At one point, I was kind of like, look, it wasn't that bad what you did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I very much wanted, I found it, like, and I think that's the thing. It's, like, how much suffering or how much soul-searching, you know, do we, we as readers want it to be sort of on parity with what we sort of think they're experiencing, and it's, I think that's a big reason why it's really hard to get right, right? Because some people like me are like, I would like suffering and I want to see it and I want it to be really good. And other people, you know, don't care as much. And I I think a lot about um, when I was in college, I sort of said something about like feeling guilty about something or I don't know, some philosophy student I know was like, do you always frame things in such like Christian terms? And I was like, shut the fuck up. Yes, I do. <laughs> right? But hey, like, we're the, gonna we're gonna give forgiveness to the Christians. Yeah, now. Like, I, I mean, <laughs> I was like, I think you know, but like I sinning or guilt or right, like it's really interesting to think about how, like I don't know, like just how we approach that as readers. I think makes yeah. it that like you are really on a tight wire as like the author. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Lumi Labs, creators of microdose gummies. So you have heard us talking about microdosing before, which is really commonly associated with wellness, performance enhancement, and creativity. And there are a lot of benefits to trying microdosing. If you just need to like get in the moment, maybe you have um, a bit of small pain or anxiety that you feel like could be managed with something. I've been using them for anxiety recently, and it's pretty great. Yeah, right? And, and you know, for me, I've, I've talked about using it for, like, late afternoon if my restless leg syndrome is kicking up, but it, before time to take my medicine. And often, I also take it at night to help me sleep. So these microdose gummies are something Sarah and I have both had a lot of success with, and they really do taste and feel 
amazing. What's your favorite flavor, Jen? There's an orange creamsicle one that is my favorite. And just the, right. the regular microdose one I also like. Either way, you can check out Microdose Gummies by going to microdose.com and using the code FADEDMATES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. And these are available nationwide. Links can be found in show notes in the description, but that's microdose.com using the code FADEDMATES. Thanks to Lumi Labs for sponsoring the episode. So my best friend, Derek Shaw Quinn, who I do a podcast with um, at the dinnerpartyshow.com, we, when we, as you all do for new Sarah McLean books, we did a release party for Sapphire Spring, but we went to our listeners and we said, okay, so answer this question. If you ran into your old bully mm-hmm. today, what would they have to say? I think we said say or do um, to make it better. I don't even know if we went as far as make it right, because like, yeah. can you make it right? But to make it right. better. And, you know, Eric was talked a lot about his experiences of bullying and of going back to his high school reunion and being like, what am I doing here? Um, but the answers were all over the place. And some people had the experience of like, yeah, I, this did happen. I ran into them. They apologized. It was enough for me or it wasn't enough for me, or I saw the condition of their life today, and that was enough for me. Yeah, shot and break <laughs> you know, goes a long that way, right? Me, <laughs> I'd be it like, oh, just... your life sucks. <laughs> Forget right. it. So sad. And <laughs> nobody had the same experience of this. I mean, some people did, but it's, and it's, that's what's like, that's the thing that puts you out on a limb or makes you feel like you're out on a limb when you're writing about it. It's like, this isn't like billionaire rolls in and fixes my life and, and bangs my brains out. This is really specific. This is yeah. like when you get into specific sexual kinks and you know some yeah. people just aren't going to have this one. And this, right. this scene is going to, yeah. you know. I mean, I really think, though, Chris, that this is a this is why it works so well for so many people. Like, this is why we yeah. come back again and again to this small, this high school t- trauma, right? Yeah. Sometimes yeah. small T, sometimes large T. But right. um, I, I actually don't think these books are, I don't think they are as niche as we necessarily think they are. I yeah. think, I do think, like, you know, he bullied her to the point where, like, I don't know, he kept her in a cage or whatever. <laughs> whatever happened <laughs> over there in Dark Romance, we need to have another Dark Romance episode. That's a different vibe. That's yeah, not what right. we're talking about. That's here. a different vibe. This yeah. is, I think, the, like, like, redemption to me is something, like, we all have regrets, right? We all have things yeah. we wish we'd done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I And I think, like, to me, these are then, like, that's, like, the, what's interesting about these is exploring, like, sort of the, I don't know, the... The way people recover from, like, the trauma of their past, and I think, like, even though I was like, I want people to suffer, I don't, as a person, I have a, I don't hold grudges, and I think it's, like, self-protective, right? Like, I want right. to move on with my life, and I think one of the things that, like, with Mason or with these books, when you have a character who is really, like, I did terrible things in the past, we want to see them moving forward, too. Mm-hmm. Right? Like being mm-hmm. stuck in your life is no good. So no. that's the thing. Like, I think, and because romance is always about a journey, right? An emotional journey, I think it's a very fr- a, a fruitful place to sort of mine is I'm, I've done wrong or I'm mm-hmm. unhappy or like whatever it is, how can I make this better? Yeah, so, totally. 
Now you totally. have some other books that you want to mention too, because I think one of the things we like to do is pivot to like, now here's a bunch of books you can read. We've mentioned some already, but what are some of the ones that you found like meaningful about redemption that you've read? Well, you know, the one that really, when I sat down and looked over my, my, my red list, um, I'm a huge fan. Let me start here. When I first sort of came into romance land, as I was talking about earlier, there was really only one author that I, that I think was very well known for doing male, male Regency. And that was KJ Charles. And she was well known wow. for a reason, which mm-hmm. is she was really fucking <laughs> She's good. Great. She's, She's so still good. good. So good. And, um, I don't know if she started this tradition. I think this was around, as you well know, Sarah, he mansplains Regency to Sarah McLean, but um, (laughs) it's impossible. Go on. (laughs) If you're going to write these stories and you're going to have characters that are about sort of progressive ideals and identities during that time period, you must have a secret society. It is an absolute (laughs) requirement. That is required. That's romance. That's romance. 100. Yes. (laughs) So, um, uh, there, there are a lot, there are now, I think several really great sort of, uh, male, male Regency authors, but the one who really stands out for me is Annabelle Green, who is a Karina author who started, uh, the Society of Beasts series a few years ago. And the second one, the, um, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. The, Wait, did you say Society Captain. of Beasts? Like Beasts. Yes, beasts. absolutely. <laughs> beasts. It's not shifters. It's not a shifter. No, it's um, like. Sorry. No, I got it. I I, I get it. I'm like, that's my favorite thing. (laughs) I I love a beast. Oh, a beast. I I do. I'm a simple woman. Immediately. (laughs) I was like, I know. We both were like, the Society of Beasts. Did you say? Click. Absolutely. Did you say beasts? Did you say giant men with big thighs? I know how this podcast works. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a listener. (laughs) I'm a listener. Wow. He really just dragged us. I feel so busted right now. I'm like... (laughs) And why am I the one blushing? Like, I don't, I don't know, mind, you know. Nothing. Amazing. I like little wee men. But anyway, um, <laughs> The Soldier and the Spy by Annabelle Green. And so the idea is that uh, young August Weatherby is basically been blackmailed into infiltrating the society. He is a man with debts, but he has accrued the gambling debts because he cares for his infirm sister who is very sickly and needs a lot of care and resources that they don't have. Their parents were kind of gamblers, liberty gibbets, abandoned them, didn't do a good job of raising them. August has always been the sort of provider of the family. And then he was caught in a raid on a Molly house, which Ooh. is one of those terms where I don't, oh. <laughs> it's not good, but okay. I'm getting to the best part. So this evil plotting aristocrat who wants to get revenge against the society for the success they were able to pull off in book one, although you do not need to read book one to understand this book at all. Um, basically recruits him to woo Captain Benjamin Frakes. <laughs> I just saw Sun. Sarah's face with. That's a great romance. There's yes. currently sunbeams Sun. shooting out of Sarah's like, face. On the I have to go right now read this. <laughs> you guys finish up. <laughs> he is a grumpy hero yes, of the Napoleonic he is. Wars, as, as we Every captain is grumpy. I think that's great and long. narrow. This there are some romance laws, and there's one of them. If you're a captain, you're grumpy as shit. It's fine. Grumpy captains, yeah. And the Napoleonic Wars were, like, not fun. Like, no war is fun, but they were, like, the beginning of no. war turning, like, oh, my God, this is horrible for everyone. Um, So, <laughs> very glib way of putting it. But, um, so, he's... 
August approaches him and basically hires him to act as protection. He has to go to a ball. He's got a scandalous mm. reputation. Stop I know. It. I knew that you like, all would be all in already. This is perfect. <laughs> right? And so you have duplicity. You have people being blackmailed. And on top of all of this, August Weatherby is a virgin. Oh. <gasps> <laughs> Which you never get in male male. Like I just you never have version heroes. Like, but he's wait, young but he's also and, the seducer. Yes, and so as he is, <laughs> how does that agenda, work out? <laughs> Brokeback, well, Brokeback Mountain, Sarah. Just go with it. No, it's fine. It's, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> it's a surprise for it, everyone. <laughs> it's it's flirty. Like his agenda is not that he's actually supposed to get the captain in bed. He is supposed to get into the captain's circle enough that he can get letters, you know, secret letters, evidence of their quote unquote perversion, which is how the villain puts it. You know, he's supposed to infiltrate the society of beasts and get into their circle. Whether or not he has to sleep with Captain and Benjamin Franks to do that is sort of not defined. But he definitely but does. Well, with that virginity hanging over his head, he you really get it wants. Out. Yeah, <laughs> just Listen, now the trust. <laughs> so the redemption part of it is you're dealing. One of the heroes is acting out of a, a mixed agenda, and normally double life stories make me crazy. You don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think you find them a ton in romance. Like I couldn't watch the first season of Alias because I was like, just tell your friends you're a spy. This is making me so nervous. <laughs> Sarah, you two are perfect for each other. She's like, spies, what? Totally. Too complicated. Right. And so when you get to, ultimately, again, there's an HEA, so it's always weird to say I don't want to spoil anything, but the mechanics of it are when you have a character who is building up this genuine love for someone they are supposed to be deceiving, how are they going to react? The aggressor, I mean the deceiver, when the pedal really hits the metal, when the moment arrives and the plot's actually going to come down. And this book, I think, also has an interesting answer as to how much they should suffer in response mm. to it, you know? Ooh, yeah. So, yeah, that's really, that was, yeah. Annabelle Green, man. She knows what she's doing. I believe you. I'm going to read that immediately. Immediately. Now, Sarah, you have another historical Oh, yeah. So I want to talk, I mean, just briefly, it's so interesting because, um, you know, it's not dissimilar from from Sapphire Spring, except it is historical. Uh, Courtney Milan's Unlocked is, um, I believe, I mean, I, I think it's her best work. I really do. Um, it's a novella and... Uh, I think she's one of these writers. She's a writer who works really, who, who some writers are just great at that, at that tight, the tight plotting of a novella. And I think Courtney is one of them. Um, but Unlocked is the story of a woman who has basically been put onto the shelf because when she was younger, a group of men in society, it's a Regency, a group of men in society, it might be Victorian, I don't know, but a group in, of, of men uh, made fun of her and, a very, very powerful, sort of well-respected man called her, called her, you know, horse-faced and said she laughed like a horse and insulted her in front of, you know, her whole, their whole community of people. Um, and she was immediately shunned and deemed unmarriageable. And this all works uh, in a really powerful way, I think, because it does under, it feels like high school. It, it Mm -hmm. hits all of those emotional beats. 
Um, and then he returns and she is, he's, uh, and, and he, he returns to her world and she wants nothing to do with him. And she is devastated by, you know, what he has done to her in the past with all of his friends. And it is revealed that he was mean to her cause he liked her mm-hmm. and, uh, didn't know how to be the one who liked her when everybody mm-hmm. else kind of thought she was odd and, you know, strange looking or whatever. Um, and it's so fascinating because I have an eight year old daughter, right? And if she walked into my office right now, oh, yeah, like, right. a boy mm-hmm. was mean to me because he liked me. I'd be like, you punch him in the face and never talk to him right. again. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> Cut him right. into pieces. Not and mail great. Them to people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what's fascinating about this plot particularly is that in the hands of skilled writers like you, like Courtney, like Charlotte, mm-hmm. this plot really hits the spot. Mm. And I think it is about us. I think it's, for me at least, a little bit, it's revenge, right? It's revenge. Mm-hmm. The yeah. idea that, like, at some point that person who was so held so much power over me might be laid low by Mm -hmm. the idea of not being able to have me. Do you think also part of it is we're going to have to deal with, if we're going to have a romantic or intersexual life as a grown up, we're going to have to deal with the phantoms of these people anyway, in some yes, way so agree. that this is just a story. This is just a very fundamental. What yes. if they were actually to manifest in our adult life? You know, we're already engaged in these conversations with ourselves about who they were and what they did and what they said and what it means. and doesn't mean it just, it, it's so it's a kind of a natural extension of that. Right. It's all, it's like pretty woman. It's that moment in pretty woman when yep. Julia Roberts is like the bad stuff is easier to believe, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. It just yeah. echoes around in your head and, yeah. and impacts every other relationship. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why these stories are so powerful because they teach us how to, I think, let go of our, our own baggage, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, okay. So I have a book by Lorelai James called I Want You Back. And I I read this because... Um, there are, we've talked briefly about how few books have like cheating. And this is a book where 10 years ago, um, Jackson, it was like an NHL star or like about to enter the NHL and he was dating Lucy and this, it's now like 10 years later and they have a daughter They don't, they were never married, right? This is his ex-girlfriend, but they are supposed to be like co-parenting. Um, but it is very clear as this book opens that Jackson has been basically doing a real shit job kind of at co-parenting and that the reason that they eventually like stopped dating was because he had been enjoying the life of a professional hockey player. I was going to say, is that a euphemism? (laughs) It's a euphemism, you guys. He was fucking around and he found out, right? Yeah. Like he, he, there was, so, you know, he was like, we weren't married. There it is. The third round. The third rail. And I specifically remember picking this book up because I was very kind of curious. Like, here is someone re- like Lorelai James is really tackling something that a lot of people are not going to get anywhere near. And a lot of romance readers want nothing to do with. Now, I have never read 
any of the other books in the series or apparently they as a characters kind of appear in earlier books. And I think this is really hard. Like, so I was just like kind of going into it, reading about them now. And I had somebody say like, oh my God, after how he act in X book, I could never forgive him. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Back to like, what can you put on page? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, basically now he is, you know, he's not playing hockey anymore. He's working essentially for like his family business. And that's where, you know, Lucy works. And he really like wants to make it right with her. And he wants to like be a good father. And he essentially has to kind of like learn all of this from scratch. Right. Mm-hmm. And we see that Lucy, like, just does not trust him, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a, it's not, they're not flashbacks necessarily, but it's a very, she, Lucy is very explicit about, like, what she went through. And so it's really interesting because you as a reader are really, like, now the reason it works is, I think, because it's dual point of view, Mm -hmm. right? If it was just her. That's a really good piece of the puzzled right yeah you have to be in their heads you have to know he is sincere and means it well to go back to sapphire spring you Mm -hmm. know from the jump that mason is gone for nasser from because the first thing we see is him talking about how much he still thinks about him and so we know that's i mean it's such a it's such a deft way chris of like centering the reader as a, a, you know, it puts us on, on his team Mm -hmm. from the jump. Right. Right. Yeah. I think if you don't have that other point of view, the reader is in constant suspense. It's almost like a thriller. It's more a sort of construction you'd find in a, in a gone girl type novel. (laughs) Right. Or you want that, that, that sense of what's, what's coming out of the shadows next. I don't have access to their thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's it. And I found myself thinking like, if I was only in her point of view and she was sort of like, he seems to be better. Maybe he's better. I'd be like, girl, you're in danger. Right. Right. (laughs) And so I think like, that's another thing. Like I was thinking even about, um, Dave, the Duchess, right? Like in book one, when he, they find him cheating, we have no glimpse in his point of view. Right. Right. So he's just a cheater until Dave, the Duchess, when he then, starts to reveal what the, the work that he's been doing and how he feels. Mm-hmm. So I, I would but say. But it's the same trick yeah. Chris uses where it's a, it's a moment of, you. I start the book with him. Yes. So, and he's obsessed with her. Like he's thinking, he literally has been counting the literal days since he's yeah. seen her for three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what I can't remember, and I was trying to remember, and maybe you do, Sarah, is, is never sweeter both points of view? No. Because there is a secret. There yeah. Because, right. well, because Charlotte uses this really deft, um, she does she does a different thing where she harnesses the kind of gone girly feel of it. Yeah. You're, you're really in the phone. I mean, I say this all the time about Charlotte. You're watching, it's like when you read a Charlotte Stein book, you're in the phone booth with these two people who are falling in love mm-hmm. and it just feels mm-hmm. like, there are moments where you feel like, oh, it's too close. I can't, but you can't, I can't get, get out. Yeah, them. I can't like get away. You're stuck in there with them. Um, right. She's so, I don't think it would work the same. That book wouldn't work the same way. Right, because, because if we knew he was like desperate to convince her that he loved her, it would take the air out of the balloon. 
right? Yeah. There's mm. there's no other plot really to that book except her forgiving him. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's kind of different because in that book, even though we're sort of talking about it in the redemption episode, and it's clear through his conversation that he has changed and wants to be different, that is a book where we're really like, what are the limits of forgiveness? Right? How it, it, is she going to be able to forgive? And I, I feel like this is the case, even though it is dual point of view, this um, I want you back. Where, like, with, like, you know, the minute she sort of talks about how, I, I don't think I'll, it's like one of those, I don't have the exact wording, but, like, the way he sort of is like, well, what do you think was going to happen? I was going off to the NHL. Like, of, like I, I, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, you thought we were, you know, and I mean, it was, like, devastating. So, I do think that that, it's like, a, you know, again, very clearly, for, from my perspective, Lorelai James really, like, saying to herself, like, can I even do this? Like, that's almost all these books feel to me like the author has dared themselves to try something that feels like in romance should be impossible. But that's, yeah, and that's, that's yeah. what it does feel like. And, uh, yeah. I, I mean, because you know, right? You know you're going to lose some, you can't, you're not going to bring every reader along. But the other thing that I think is so important about this is these stories are not Impossible. They are not unheard of in real life. I mean, of course. I mean, of these course. are. There is a reason why these stories exist in the world. Yeah. Now, Chris, you have at least one more to talk about. I have one more to talk about briefly, and I don't know if Sarah does. I just have a broad thought that I want to. Okay. All right. Uh, well, this one is. Wait for it. It's actually called Redemption, and Perfect. it's by <laughs> Name I, is I, Destiny. Right. Like, and I, I, okay. So here's the deal. Like, I don't know what's in the water in the UK, but, (laughs) but it's, and I'm not talking about Brexit. I'm talking about like, there was in that early period when Merrill Mail was sort of coming off the internet, as I like to say it, and small presses were getting involved and publishers were starting to sort of stick their toe in the waters, but they, none of them were doing traditional print runs yet. This was years ago. Now they are, and it's great. Um, But in that early period, there was a pack of writers out of the UK that were just bringing it. And it was like J.L. Merrow, Harper Fox, Joanna Chambers, just really Mm -hmm. good stuff. And the top of that pack for me is Garrett Lee, is a writer named Garrett Lee. And she just writes these tales about um, working class British men with gooey centers, but tough exteriors, falling in love, like billionaires do not show up to fix everything. They're living in difficult communities, urban communities, and redemption is like all of that in spades. So the setup is that Louise, who was one of the main characters, is just in a six-year stint in prison and um, for a botched robbery that went wrong with the gang that he was a member of. And I guess the British term is roadman, which mm-hmm. I had never heard before before reading this book. And he is determined to live a better life, but he is in that space that ex-cons often find themselves in where it's like, how am I going to get a job? This is on my record. I'm on, I guess, whatever the equivalent of probation is in the UK. I don't think it's called probation. I think there's a different term for it. Um, And so he goes back to the neighborhood that he knows. And there is this young man named Paolo, who he's never met before, who is struggling to keep his um, deli open while simultaneously providing care for his two grandparents who are in separate care homes because the system has put them there. It's just these, these two young men are dealing with the most difficult of circumstances and then they find each other. And it's like, uh, 
I call it help me with my shit romance. You know, like it's like, <laughs> right. Luis needs a job. Paolo does not want to hire him. His reputation precedes him. The gang is very well known. Luis's older brother runs the gang. He's still around. Like there are red flags on the field and he goes, but on top of that, Luis is really gorgeous, which is, you know, a problem, you know, and Paolo is out and gay and all of this sort of stuff. So he goes to his grandfather and he says, I'm not going to hire this guy. And his grandfather's like, yes, you are you are going to hire this guy because everybody deserves a second chance. And so he does. And then it's like, it's about Luis. This is the sort of general redemption arc. Like Luis is trying to live a better life, you know? And so he's showing up early. He's cleaning up the diner. Like there's, and it's that scene where I just melted. Paolo shows up and everything is straightened up and clean for the first time. Oh, the best. Well done. (laughs) it's like when Eric Shaw, my best friend, Eric Shaw Quinn, the scene in the Outlander series where he brought her a scarf because she might be cold. Yeah. Eric burst into tears on his sofa. <laughs> Listen, Eric, one of us, one of us. <laughs> He's one of us. Eric is also a brilliant, wonderful writer, but um, yes. And so, but this is about like, there's no, this has got the moment in it that I think you want to talk about controversial. This is like, so, the old life starts to come for Luis in the form of his brother, who sure. is not going to let him go. And Paolo starts to get threatened, which Luis realizes when uh, graffiti from his old gang starts to show up in his neighborhood with an Italian flag in the middle of it, because Paolo is an Italian. And he has to leave him to protect him. Oh, the best! Oh. The best! <laughs> I hate it, but I love it. I'm like, yeah, of course. Yes. <laughs> totally. And so I, it's just one of those where it's like, I, again, it's about building a new relationship in an, in, in a sort of new life that you want for yourself, despite your past. But it also, it demands that Luis face down the ghosts of his past, mm-hmm. you know, and without giving too much away, the seeds of his redemption are, but like he went to prison for a reason and the robbery was botched for a reason. So that's all I'm going to kind of say. So this dawning awareness that he was living a life that he didn't want to be living and being a, the kind of person that he didn't want to be was there even before he went to prison. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes part of the saving grace, but I, the, the parts of the book that were so like exciting for me is those early chapters of like, knowing all of this about someone, do you still let yourself fall in love? Like, do you still let yourself go out there on a limb with this person that you know has this past? And, and that watching that journey for the two of them was really moving. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to talk about a book that again, I, you know, what's interesting about these books is I feel like I'm usually like, our practice is to talk about books we like, we recommend, like, right? Like, I don't really recommend books on the podcast. I don't recommend, but these books were so hard to read for me, mm. right? Like, I feel like when I recommend a book that was like, I don't know if that makes sense. So I'm going to talk about The Unwanted Wife by Natasha Anders, which was like a book that I like read, but also like read it, like kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm reading this. Right. And I say that as praise because it was incredibly like difficult, I think, to read. It was very like triggering of the kinds of things that upset me in like relationships, essentially. Have you read this one, Sarah? Yeah. Well, and I was just going to say structurally, this book is really fascinating too, because I think part of the reason why it's so difficult to read is because it feels almost stream of consciousness. Yes. Like, right. Yes. It's a re- it's fa- it's fascinating in that I've never read a romance novel that was written this way. 
Yes. So Teresa is the main character and the book starts with like them having sex, but it is not sexy, right? Like it is literally like he doesn't really touch her. It's like clearly like there's something so wrong. Like you can just tell from the beginning. Um, And she essentially like asks him pretty quickly, like kind of after this for a divorce, she's like finally had enough. And what, what kind of comes to what we come to realize as she comes to realize it. And I think that's the other thing is like, we're experiencing it with her, right? That stream of consciousness thing. There's like no respite at all from like this experience she's going through is that her, she thought she was marrying for love. Um, His name's Sandro. And they've been, it's been 18 months, but he essentially, the minute they got married, just started treating her like dirt. And I mean, it's bad news. And it turns out that he had been blackmailed into marrying her by her father. And he Mm -hmm. thought she was in on it. And she had no idea, right? So like, she thinks she's marrying for love. And he thinks, he knows he's not. He's being essentially like blackmailed into marrying her. And he thinks she is part of it. And so he's like, well, I get to just treat her terribly because she trapped me, like literally. And once he realizes that she has had no idea what was going on, we see him not only have to like redeem himself and make restitution, but also like like every, you know what I mean? Like, you know how like you get a new piece of information and then like a past incident makes sense in a different way. Mm-hmm. He has to do that with like, he has to retcon essentially their entire marriage. Like every fight they had now is different. Every like thing she said, he has to be like, oh my God, that's what she meant. And I think that it, it, it is a painful book to read because he is not, I mean, he really is terrible to her, mm. right? But once we realize kind of, like, how he was feeling and, like, his assumptions going in, it's really, like, punishing, though. But I read the whole thing. I mean, so Mm -hmm. for me, it was, like, one of those things where I was, like, this is hard to read, but I have to keep reading. I have to see what's going to happen. It's interesting because I think as I was preparing for this episode, I was thinking a lot about old school romances, like the original Mm. sort of historicals from the 70s and 80s and early 90s, where um, the heroes were just ciphers, right? They were super alpha, impenetrable, just um, you never knew what they were feeling. And they don't break until the dark moment at the end where, like, it's clear that the heroine has had it up to here and is done. And then she leaves and he breaks. I mean, he he can't help but go after her. And in many cases in these books, these, especially in the 70s and 80s, these are the books that we talk about all the time where there's, you know, assault in the early pages. The hero is, is the perpetrator of the assault, the assaulter. Um, and then suddenly he he has to absolutely redeem. I mean, he has to redeem himself. He, it is, they are true redemption stories, each one. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think one, I, I was thinking a lot about how the bones of the genre in many ways, the bones of the modern romance genre are about redemption. Um, Mm -hmm. but they're also in, when, you know, Jen, as you were talking about the unwanted wife, it's also about that sort of flip of power, the, And who gets to 
decide if the character is redeemed, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I don't think I, I don't think Mason, for example, can say like, "Look, I'm a good guy now," Mm-mm. right? Right? Um, right? Nasara is Nasara has to say that Nasara has yes. to see it, and we don't trust Mason until Nasara trusts him, right? We don't trust right. the old school impenetrable hero until the heroine sees him break, and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That flip of power, I mean, obviously the end of the romance novel is about parity, always, mm-hmm. right? Like it's about right. equity and right. and two people standing shoulder to shoulder, but or you know, however many people standing shoulder to shoulder. But in order for these particular stories to work, the power has to, in order for them to balance, it has to shift out of balance again for me mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah. I at agree. that dark moment. You know, I, I talk about Eric Jacquin all the time because he's a genius and my best friend, but he's also my first reader, right? And he uh, he wrote a beautiful love story called The Prince's Psalm, but it deals with the historical reality of the love story between Jonathan and David in the book of Samuel. So it's, I call it biblical brokeback. It has the ending <laughs> that it does, but he um, he is my delightfully toughest reader. And when I gave him, I would say, Sapphire Storm, which is not out yet, we're not talking about, his conclusion from reading it is like the best romance stories say to someone who has never felt seen, you are seen. And that moment, Sarah, that that you're talking about is part and parcel of that. It's, I've never been seen by you before, and now you must give me the power to decide whether or not you've been redeemed. Because part of what I'm redeeming you for is your erasure of me, your attempt to erase me. In Mason's Mm -hmm. case, you were attempting to get me out of your view because I made you feel things you didn't want to feel. So yeah, you're right. Like that, that is the moment that establishes the parody that you're describing. But I think the thing that we also talk about that comes up in the book with high school perceptions is that Mason almost saw them as being in a relationship back then Mm. because he had this repressed desire and Nasser has to be the one to tell him we were not like you were the football golden boy. And I went home alone and had my friends in math club. So this is not an, this can't be an extension of what that was. It has to be a reboot. It has to be a complete reset. And this is where it starts, not where it ends with Mm. me saying, you know, you're either redeemed or you're not. And I think you're right. And I think these books, all the books that we're talking about are like, how do people earn that moment? How do characters earn that moment? Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing I think about a lot is, and again, like, it's funny because I don't usually talk this much about like the things I tell students or the things I tell kids, but like I, I litigate sometimes like things that go wrong between my students, right? And one of the things I always make a point of saying if I'm like, okay, like, so-and-so wants to apologize to you, right? Chris wants to apologize to Sarah. Is before that that happens, I will say, you don't have to accept that apology. Mm -hmm. I would like you to listen to it, but then you have to decide. And there are times a kid looks at me when when I say that, when I've said that, and you can tell no one has ever told them that before. Right, yeah. Right? Like, like, it's just like, well, you apologize and then it's fine and you can move on. And I really try and make a point of saying, like, I would like, I think you should listen to this apology, but you now have to, you get to decide whether or not you want to forgive. 
yeah. And right? the, the other There's thing. There's power the, in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the Eric Shaw Quinn quote again it, that I love that he always brings up on our podcast is I get to decide what accepting an apology means. Like, <laughs> I cannot glower at you in the hallways, but you're not coming to dinner. Like we're not there right. yet, maybe someday, but like the, the nature of that acceptance. And so there's accepting the apology and then there's, I'm going to let you into my bed. Like that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. a huge another leap. That's what has to be really earned. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause I think, you know, but you know, as I was making these lists and thinking about these books, so many of these are books that I, I mean, that live rent free for me. Mm-hmm. Like they just, I think about them all the time. I mean, I think redemption, particularly in romance, particularly in this genre that we all write and we all love. And, um, it really is one of the few places where we can unpack this really complex, these really complex emotions. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't really thought, I'm so glad you picked this topic. Um, Chris, because yeah. it, it really did feel like, oh, we've never done this episode before. And it is so important. It's, it feels like it's in the DNA of the genre. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like almost mm-hmm. like, and I think that's maybe why we haven't done it. Right. Like, well, of course, like we talk about it all the time, but to really talk about what it means. Right. And, yeah. right. and, and I think more so than a lot of other tropes or a lot of other like emotional things we unpack, this is, I also think, where the bond between the reader and the author is the most, like, the veneer is completely gone, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because it's like, if this is, like, her, you know, it's just so emotionally powerful. Right. By design. So you're already, right, you're already, like, entering into these books with, like, okay, I'm I'm going to get wrecked. <laughs> Not this yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. I've always said that romance is a genre in which vulnerability is rewarded. And I came yeah. out of a genre where vulnerability was punished and there was mm-hmm. an injustice and it needed to be righted. And that's what thrillers and a lot of mysteries are. But yeah. this is a genre where the story advances, the more vulnerable the characters make themselves. That's right. And this is an aspect of that. How vulnerable yeah. can I get with you if you fucked me over 10 yeah. years ago or right. four years ago? Yeah. So, C. Travis Rice, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. We are thrilled to finally have made it happen. Um, your Sapphire Cove series, two of the three books are out. The first one is yes. Sapphire Sunset. The most recent is Sapphire Spring. That's the one we've been talking about today. Um, and Sapphire Storm is out. March 7th, 2023. You heard it here. Um, and there's a new cover announced. We'll yes. make sure we're oh, yeah, putting it, we'll, it. We'll show it. It'll be one of the images. It'll be maybe the image right now as we're, as we're talking. Um, I've arrived. Tell us <laughs> where people can find you. Well, um, the podcast I do with my best friend, Eric Shaw Quinn, is always available at the Dinner Party Show or where podcasts are sold, <laughs> which they aren't sold. We and say this podcast, this podcast, that podcast right. is also free. And ours is free as well. It's actually called Christopher and Eric. Um, Christopher Rice Books is my website and um, Facebook and Instagram. I always forget my handles, but I have blue check marks and Twitter I check every five days. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. So that's where I am. Amazing. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. Will you come again? 
I will come, and I'm such a Faded Mates fan, and when I come back next time, I'll tell you my the story when Faded Mates blooded me in my <sighs> kitchen while I was cooking, but yes. <laughs> what? Yes, yes anytime. <laughs> well, anytime. then now you have to come back. I feel like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. Well, Absolutely. and you know what? It's this time, third time's a charm. I don't know if people remember, but Chris was supposed to come to Faded Mates Live and was sick and couldn't make it, and then mm-hmm. was supposed to join us on Bookstore Romance Day and Technical Difficulties prevented it but here we are live and with no technical absolutely perfect no one needs to be forgiven or redeemed for anything that happened (laughs) in this episode good job everybody excellent work quick everyone jump off before (laughs) before somebody exactly oh no oh no all right. Um, this has been an episode of Faded Mates. You can find us at fadedmates.net or you can find us uh, at Faded Mates Pod on Instagram or at Faded Mates on Twitter. Um, thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you next week. 